Welcome to the pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So I think, feel like it's been a while since we've been in the studio. I think so, too, because we've we've now got those cool remotes, uh, remote uh, mics. Mine is an We have gym. the technology now to, like make it awesome. Yeah. Soon there will be mics small enough that just we can think of something and it will immediately get beamed over to Richard. Although I have to say I was in a facility recently and they had a speaker. I was in the back room and the speaker was not what it should be. And normally I'm not so sensitive to these kinds of things, but it felt like some sort of evil villain, like some old timey cartoon where there's like an evil villain with like sound waves trying to murder everybody. I was like, somebody's trying to murder me with that, with that speaker. It was like on a delay with like, um, like feedback. Anyway, so it made me appreciate good sound quality for a brief moment. But speaking of appreciate, can we just say a couple nice words about Koki Roberts? We did a panel with her like a year or two ago. This we first did time at I the National her. Archives. Yes. And I remember how thinking at the time how enthusiastic she was about the archives where I guess she's on the board and she was just like really passionate about the space, which was like just to showed her dedication to public service in Washington and its institutions. And I had been on on air with her before, but that was, I think, the first time I had met her. And she was so lovely. And then I see all these other lovely things people have written about her and how generous she was to other women in the industry who all, like me, sort of grew up seeing her as one of the only faces and voices Mm -hmm. in media. Like, for just so long, she was just one of few kind of, like, women powerhouses and that she was so kind and generous to all the other ladies who came after her. It was she just such a beautiful was. Thing. I remember the first time I met her. So I've. I probably were on set with her a lot. At I, ABC. I, I got to meet her a lot. We spent a lot of time in the ABC makeup room uh, together. And I just it, I was always starstruck by her. But she's just so warm and friendly yeah. that like y- you can't help but also feel like. Like she, like she's both extremely intimidating and not at all intimidating. Yeah. Like it, it's, it is such a loss. It is. I mean, I was going through my email and I had like the note from her where like she couldn't come to my Christmas party, but was like, I hope I can catch up with you in the new year. And now she's gone. Like Aww. I just, it's, it is. I mean, and I think the outpouring of stories you are yeah. hearing from other women is so powerful because it's I think sometimes the stereotype of like, oh, women are all cutthroat or whatever is like way overblown. But I mean, the uh, the fact that she was so intentional about trying to lift up other women. I couldn't believe it. Is like the stories. Notable. I mean, there, there were so and they were very specific. They were like, I accosted her outside a panel. That was I, the Hallie Jackson yeah, story. Like, yeah. I sent her a letter and she wrote me back. Like, you know, I yep. was in the hospital and there she was. Like, I mean, they were like really very real and personal. So anyway, her my I, I, I have written and f- I have filed the um, an, uh, piece about her for the Washington Examiner magazine, which will come out this weekend. Um, we'll see if if my editor, Seth, comes back with any big changes. But in it, I talk about my two Cokie Roberts stories, one of which uh, was like the first time I met her. I had just filed the manuscript for the selfie vote like 36 hours earlier. And so I was like exhausted and delirious. And all of a sudden she's like in the makeup room with me. And I'm like, 
oh my gosh, it's Cokie Roberts. Like, get it together, Kristen. And she was also working on her manuscript for HarperCollins, too. And so she's giving me pointers about, like, you should check. They have a house style for uh, footnotes. I'm like, great. I just spent the last three days doing footnotes, probably in the wrong format. I want to die. But she was like, hey, you turned your manuscript on on time, which may be the first person in the history of book publishing to have ever done so. So congratulations. (laughs) And then my other memory of her that I wrote about for the piece is... Um, we were on a rowdy political roundtable, which I will I will leave nameless. Um, but we were both sitting next to each other on one of these like chit chatty political shows, and not one of the Sunday shows. Right, they're a classier affair usually. It was one of the the more rowdy affairs, and some of the and like the host was talking a lot over the guests. Sure. I don't, this doesn't narrow it down no, for anyone, I'm like, I don't think, I'm thinking at all. like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, keep um, going. I feel, I'm like, but, are you trying to give me a signal? Because uh, um, they're all coming on up. On the panel, Koki <laughs> uh, starts trying to interrupt this guy, but not to, like, make a point of her own, but to be like, so, so Kristen actually has some interesting information. Aww. So, so Kristen, Kristen, like she tries like multiple times, and I was just flabbergasted by that because no one on television like yields time to someone else, right? right? Um, but she was there like trying to fight for me to like have a be able to get an edge a word in edgewise with like all of these guys with their real strong opinions. So. Guys with opinions. Guys with opinions. Uh, <laughs> this was a couple of years ago. Now I interrupt for myself, but like I didn't have the courage to interrupt. You know big prominent TV host person right? back then. I do now. Young women listening, just if you have something to say, just say it. Don't. Alas, Cokie Roberts was there to try to help hand me the microphone when I was too afraid Aww, to that is so grab sweet. it myself. Well, we have we have things to say or we have polls to talk about. Uh, what yes. is happening? So this week we're going to talk about the not really changing Democratic primary field, but we'll dig into some of the crosstabs from this latest NBC Wall Street Journal poll, as well as a couple of others about did the debates change things, et cetera, what's going on in some of these early states. Trump's job approval also not really moving that much, but we'll check in on how that's going. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the state of work in America, what types of jobs people are having, how do people feel about their workplace, etc. We will dive into the question of work. And then finally, what is the proper stage of ripeness in which someone ought to consume a banana? And what counts as art? We will discuss. <laughs> yes, I liked both of those. Um, so yes, yeah, so first, we have the debate. You know, we have the Democratic primary. I, you know, I continue to say we should not expect or demand or be surprised by a lack of sudden big sweeping changes that people, you know, who follow these things are following different changes, different, you know, staff changes or people going up on the air or, you know, somebody's made a speech or there's a video or what have you. That doesn't mean that the national news or that, you know, even if the national news covers some of this stuff, does it drive the national polling numbers, right? And the national news also reflects a little bit of the national polling numbers. They're both kind of, you know, self-reinforcing still. Regardless, are they, should we expect or see really big changes here? And the answer is not particularly. Not really. I mean, we the only time we saw bit. that really big change 
was Senator Harris spiking up about 10 points when she had the viral moment about, you know, going after Joe Biden over busing. But that was like a sugar high. It didn't sustain. And she's now fallen back. She's tied with Mayor Pete in six percent land in the polling averages. Um, What was this story I saw sort of come across the transom about Harris's own pollster releasing polling that showed pretty bad news for her in Iowa? Did you see this story? Um, I believe it was it, I think it's this David, David Binder, Binder poll um, that was like, hey, this is her pollster and this is a poll he put out and it's not good news for her. Um, I mean, that's I think really the only everybody else's numbers have been pretty steady. The only real storylines are here are that Elizabeth Warren went from like single digits up to 17, 18 percent on average uh, and Harris spiked and then went back down to five points at average. Right. But everything else has been like relatively stable for months. Right. I so, so the the nerds, the super nerds who closely follow qualifying polls probably enjoyed this Andrew Yang <laughs> comment of like <laughs> of um you know saying Zach, are you Zach? <laughs> Whatever he's getting, give that man a raise. Candidates like me live and die in his every word. We're like, hey Zach, did that poll count? Because Zach is the keeper of like he tracks all of the qualifying polls for Politico and like <laughs> with you know, which there have been, it's not as simple as saying today a new one came out. There's obviously lots of layers that we've discussed before. Does this one count? And, you know, what does this mean? And, you know, what if they're showing top lines this or is this outlet count or is the open it, et cetera. There's all kinds of different layers to it. And Zach has been keeping very close tabs of that. So it was funny to see a candidate say, hey, you're that guy who keeps the spreadsheets of, you know, who keeps track of that. So anyway, that was pretty funny. And Zach had a funny tweet, like, I'm in favor of a candidate's platform being like, give me a raise. But that's like a very specific, like, targeted, (laughs) targeted plan for that one guy. Anyway, so I thought that was funny for folks who are following it all closely. Yeah, I mean, the the binder poll in Iowa, there was another one, um, another Iowa poll that came out. These were not qualifying polls, um, but people are watching them as well. And, you know, the NBC Wall Street Journal, that was national, came out. Fox News came out. Uh, so there's a variety. You know, there's some others that came out. And then, uh, uh, you know, what do they tell us? I mean, they they sort of reinforce this, this same story. Um, uh, 538 tried to look at some polling. And I think this is their own polling that they did of debate watchers versus not debate watchers to see what changed. Um, and they saw that you know, that among debate watchers, there was more change than among debate non-watchers, which I think makes sense, um, and more change uh, for uh, Beto uh, and Castro in different directions. And Beto moved up and Castro moved down. Now, again, you know, uh, are those findings and effects, do they last for a while? Or are they temporary? Um, you know, we'll see. And it's going to depend a little bit. Sometimes, you know, the coverage of what happens after a debate is affects people differently than watching the debate itself. Um, you know, we don't know. These things are these things are still moving and, and probably not moving quite so dramatically. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, what are some of these other polls ask? I mean, the Binder poll showed about 30 percent of Iowa caucus goers, Democratic caucus goers, said they watched all of the September debate, it was 35 percent in June at the, at the first one. But 30 percent, I think, is, you know, I don't know, is that 30 percent full or empty? Right. I mean, I feel like that's a 
like not a huge number given how much importance we put on the debates. Is that number really, really high? I, I don't I don't know. There's also probably some, you know, overreporting of how likely you, you know, that you're uh, watching the entire debate. There's probably overreporting of, of, of all of that. So um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll see how these things, you know, change over time. And then the last thing is what goes on in some of these other polls beyond just the horse race, which is obviously important. Um, one thing I saw, this was in the civics poll, which I think is going to be a panel where they're going to keep going back to these folks. I love a good panel. Love a good panel. It's interesting, right? We'll see. But, you know, I think it's an online panel that they're going to go back to. At, at any rate, it, it's the methodology is not what I wanted to flag here. It was this question. What do you think is the primary reason Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 presidential election? I, this is just nails on a chalkboard for me. Like, what does this tell us? You know, I don't know what this tells us. I don't know like what the analyst this is just like a political question that people want to know the answer that political people want to know the answer to this is not a thing that you know we learn something analytically by asking people their own political handicapping about this sort of stuff um and and i also you know Clinton focused too much on identity. I mean, why not have, you know, why wouldn't you have on here like voters were not ready for, you know, a woman candidate or like, you know, there there were, you know, latent or implicit bias in gender. I mean, you know, that seems like an obvious one to include if you were going to include a list. But anyway, what do we get by asking people this question? And how are these things are not even mutually exclusive, these answer categories. So that one was really nails on a chalkboard. I'm sorry. I I feel like a better way to frame this would be to find out, because I, I think if electability is a core concern for Democrats, and there's lots of data that suggests that it is, then I think it is worthwhile to find out what if for de- for looking backwards, how are they diagnosing what happened last time around? Because on the Republican side with, with Mitt Romney's loss, I mean, the tension was on the one hand, you had some people that said Mitt Romney lost because he was too moderate and elite and he wasn't going to energize the base because he was a venture capitalist squish from a blue state. Right. And then you had the folks that were like, no, no, no. We lost because he pandered too much to the right. The party's gone too far. We need to do better with Latino voters and young voters and what have you. And so that's what went wrong. And those are mutually exclusive uh, right. viewpoints on what the party should do. I mean, you can say both of those things went wrong, but primarily people would fall into one camp or the other, and that would dictate what you wanted moving forward. So Donald Trump came in and was like, uh, I think the problem was you guys just haven't been bold enough and you haven't, you know, just speak your mind enough and you're too politically correct and whatever. So ha- what people's, what voters' theories are about why you lost last time can be relevant. My quibble with this is the answer options. Do people think... She was she was fine and her campaign was fine. It was just Russia. Do they think she personally is not the issue, but the policies were either too conservative and they didn't energize the base or were too progressive and they alienated moderates? Or then you get into some of the stuff that's nails on a chalkboard. You know, the like, was it something about her personally? That's what turned voters off. I mean, there are. You can structure this around like, was it a policy problem? Was it a personality problem? Was it an organization problem? Was it a Russia problem? And if so, like in what direction? That I mean, that's maybe too complicated for this question, but that's how I would think about it. Yeah. 
<laughs> so what's, what's this, this other thing? You've got two polls in the script where you've written know. why I with a lot of question marks and exclamation points. What's what's this Sorry, other I'm one? I'm just like Clinton focused too much on identity politics. It's like a question. Like, I don't know. I know it's just a, like, it, oh. it, all it would need would be to add stricter gun control laws in there. Like and like what are some of your, cor- you know, politically <laughs> correct Your or other uh, pet peeves in polling. Yes. Um, yeah. Though the other one, I mean, this is, you know, is a poll – about rural issues. And so I guess what I guess I understand, you know, they had a like analytical interest, you know, in figuring out something more about um, you know, views toward uh um EPA waivers to oil refineries. But the que- you know, the question that I was wondering, and this is just, you know, how do you ask these things like why is it important for a candidate to bring it up? You know, it just it's and it's kind of similar to my objection to like, why do you think Clinton lost? Like it's some of these questions that are are asking people to, you know, do kind of political punditry in some way that, you know, the you find out something's important by asking them, is it important to you? And then you're like, this is important. People should bring it up, you know. So and so that's just my that I have less that's not nails on a chalkboard the way I feel about like did Hillary Clinton, you know, asking six different ways in one question if like Hillary Clinton was flawed personally. Like I find that very <laughs> nails on a chalkboard. That other one I didn't find quite so nails on a chalkboardy. But anyway, um this is, you know, these are the things that are are coming out in the primary. And, you know, we'll see if there's some more primary polls. There haven't been a lot of Iowa polls. These are some of the Iowa polls. Again, they are not qualifying as Zach who's, I guess, now, like, you know, called out new celebrity fame from, thanks to Andrew Yang, um, would be following. So he would not include these two in his spreadsheet. Uh, The only other thing I want to hit on about the Democratic primary is Steve Kornacki tweeted out the top line, or um, crosstabs, from the NBC Wall Street Journal national poll of Democratic primary voters. It should be noted that the overall top lines for this one were very favorable to Elizabeth Warren, unfavorable to Bernie Sanders. It had uh, Joe Biden coming in pretty strong position or in in sort of where he's always been. It had Elizabeth Warren coming in in stronger position than the average. I think it had her at about 25 percent. And then it had Bernie Sanders at 14 what is notable when you look at the crosstab, so one, there's the race crosstab, which, if you've been listening to the show, kind of breaks down along the lines that you would expect. You know, Joe Biden, really strong with black voters, right. um, 49%, big drop down to second place for Elizabeth Warren at 13. But Elizabeth Warren is kind of hanging in there in like the first or second place position across every crosstab, mm-hmm. where like Biden and Sanders, like, oscillate wildly depending on which crosstab you're right. looking at. Age so, was the other one. Yeah. And so age was the one that really stuck out to me. I mean, the age crosstabs on this, um, the for younger Democrats, Democrats under the age of 30, they find Sanders in first place at 33%. But for senior citizens, he's at 2%. 33 to 2% across the age cross tabs. And then Biden, it kind of, it's not, it's it's about as dramatic. Biden is at 10% for the under 35s. He trails Andrew Yang. He trails Andrew Yang. Yang gang. And then 25, 65%, or pardon me, 65 and up, Biden is way out in the lead at 46%. Um, but Warren's like a quarter among everybody. She's like one in five, one in four Democrats. No matter who you are, what you look like. So it's interesting. Well, I mean, it's not surprising, right? Because Sanders did well with younger voters last time around. So it's not surprising that he's still strong with them. But it also goes to show this like thing that sometimes people would ask you, you know, on panels and such like, well, what are, you know, don't we need more younger candidates? Because for younger voters and you would say, well, you know, Bernie Sanders is not 
like necessarily what you would think of as a younger candidate. And he does really well with younger voters. And it's not like younger voters are all looking for an older candidate because Joe Biden does well with older voters. So it's not like younger voters or older voters are looking at the candidate and saying, is this person like me? Yes or no. That's not their decision making process. Um, The only other thing I'll add is I just need to defend the dignity of the word selfie for a moment. (laughs) I got into a totally frivolous, petty Twitter exchange. Well, I was trying to be funny, but then some people like took it really seriously. Like I was trying to attack Elizabeth Warren because a CNN article covered how she does these really effective photo lines at her rallies. My criticism is absolutely not of that. She's really smart. By having a photo line where the attendee steps up, hands their phone to a staffer, and the staffer takes a picture of you with Elizabeth Warren and then hands the phone back to you. You then have a photo you can instantaneously share on social media, which is great. That's, I mean, the that is enormously successful social media marketing. It's not a selfie. If neither of the people in the picture is holding the phone, it's not a selfie. It's a picture. Yes. That's great. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's not a selfie if none of the subjects of the photo are taking a picture of them self. Right. So what's the, so it's just a, but that's just not as catchy. Right. Everybody <laughs> loves the word selfie. I'm just saying there need to be some rules around when you can use it. As okay. the guardian, Are as, you the, like as the as pounding the, your gavel. As the guardian of <laughs> the political selfie. If you had a gavel. I just think there need to be some rules here. Yeah. People. I remember so. when you were doing like people were taking selfies of themselves with your book when the, it came out, but I had like just had a baby like three days before. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm taking a picture of my children. <laughs> and, it, and I know it is not a selfie, and that is it's fine. I'm willing. <laughs> it's I, okay. I will be okay with that. <laughs> Hopefully, nobody on Kristen's Facebook feed, like, is like, that's not a selfie. And if so, I'm prepared to get into a fight with them. <laughs> like, that, like, that was a conversation I had in my head. We just, we have selfie creep and it cannot stand. Wow. They're just trying to be efficient. You can appreciate efficient logistics, but I understand. Uh, so just a quick uh, check in on Trump land before we move into the other big issue of the day. Um, So Trump's job approval hanging out about where it was in the polling averages. It's like a teeny tiny little bump, but that's because you've got a Rasmussen poll that's got it looking real good. Um, So yeah, when you take a look at Rasmussen, 51%, it's, I'm surprised the president hasn't tweeted that number yet. Oh, look, a majority of people like me. Um, It's out of step with where most of the polls are, but it is included in these averages. And so he does get a little bump this week. Yeah, but there were a variety of other, I don't have them in the script, but there's continued to be like the general election matchups that have been released. I mean, he's down in all, like, I, I haven't seen a lot of general election matchups nationally or in a variety of states that have him up man it that that continues to be true well let's take a quick break and when we come back we'll talk about work in america are you good with people maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers well then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career a google career certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like it support project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online, so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Well, welcome back. Uh, We now are going to talk a little bit about 
the issue of work. Um, part of this is because right now you have um, United Auto Workers. There's a strike happening. Um, so that's kind of put this issue up in the news. This week on the trend line, I talked to um, a woman who actually leads the nonprofit employees, like professional employees union, to talk to her about millennials in the workforce. So this is an issue that's that's pretty top of mind. It we're doing this a little late. We didn't do it on Labor Day, so we're like we've pu- we've pushed the topic. <laughs> we're doing it right. like two weeks late. Um, but there's some there's a lot of fascinating trend data going back. You know decades on things like how has the nature of work changed. Um, And so if you're interested in the generational stuff like we are here on the show, particularly um, interesting stuff. So Pew and Gallup, whenever you're looking at these long trend lines, they usually have like the best data over time on stuff. Um, Pew did an analysis of the median annual earnings uh, for 25 to 37 year olds who worked full time and reported positive earnings. Um, and it's accumulating this data from uh, from the current population survey, social and economic supplement. So this is not a poll poll. It's like a government. I mean, it is a survey, but it's like a huge scale government survey. And they're analyzing this data. And it's all normalized to be in 2017 dollars. Um, but they do find that if you have a bachelor's degree, um, your sort of median annual earnings for early adulthood um, have gone up a little bit since the days of the early boomers. Um, But if you were somebody that has just some college or you're a high school graduate, uh, that's not been the case. In fact, your median earnings as a young adult have fallen relative to where things were for uh, stayed stagnant or fallen a little bit compared to where the boomers were when they were young adults. So when the millennials complain that they got handed a crap economy and they're expected to get married and have kids and do all the things the boomers did, but they don't have enough money to do so and they have all the student loan debt. They're not just being whiners. There's economic data that says it's true. Yeah. No, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's, you know, I think a troubling, one of the most troubling things of all the different stats and figures we collected today, because it does seem to be like foreshadowing it's foreboding like here you know there's an increase in income inequality based on the educate you know the education educational attainment that you have even though overall this is additional census data that pew analyzed there have been gains in income and households headed by less educated adults but that's different from comparing where younger people are based on their education over time. So even though there have been some recent gains over time, younger people at that education level are not catching up or not increasing to the same degree as those with a college degree. So one of the things we we were taking a look at, there's a paper in here where it's about people getting feedback from their bosses. And there's actually like Gallup has been tracking over a pretty long period of time a bunch of different trends um, regarding American workers. Uh, And it doesn't look like it actually made it into our script, but it was things like, um, you know, uh, people's concerns that they're going to lose their job. Like that's actually fallen since 2010. but something that people has that's kind of stayed stagnant, but that most people are generally happy with, is the feedback they get from their boss. Like this actually kind of surprised me. Like there are certain things people in the workforce complain about, um, but there are other things that uh, people seem to think are okay. And like feedback from their boss. Let me pull up the exact <laughs> numbers um, or feedback about their their performance. People are kind of okay with. But there's this academic study, Margie, that that you flagged about how people don't like getting feedback. They don't like getting negative feedback. 
Well, who does? But they really don't Feedba- like getting negative feedback from a lady boss. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm still going to give it. <laughs> but, you know, for feedback, yeah, I mean, feedback is a gift, right? That's that's what I try to remind myself when I get feedback from folks. I'm like, feedback is a gift. So, yeah, it's important to be able to give and receive feedback, you know, in a kind of a, you know, a calming a calming way. Um, but I still found that interesting. And, you know, we didn't dig deep into this, but still the fact that the gender of, you know, both for men and women, they pref- they were they felt less negative about negative feedback if it came from a male boss and from a female boss. And it's it goes, I guess, with, you know, anecdotally how people talk about it, their views toward women bosses uh, um, as uh, you know, feeling like they have a difficult relationship with a woman boss or they might not feel that way about a male boss. That's, you know, a different kind of challenge than women not getting promoted as much to the same degree as men if you have a different reaction with the with the gender as a boss. Um, but, you know, that stuff is not in as much of the public polling. You have to really do that as kind of an experiment because people are not going to self-report that sort of thing. Other interesting trend data about work in America uh, is, you know, for women in the workforce, um, we talk frequently on this show about polling around uh, women in the workforce, balancing, raising kids and working full time. Um, And Pew finds that there was a big shift over the 50 years in between 1968 and 2018 in the percentage of U.S. mothers with children younger than 18 who are also employed. In 1986, only a third of uh, mothers with children younger than 18 were employed. In 68, were employed full-time, 17% part-time. So it was a slight majority were employed, but only a third of them back then were employed full-time. Nowadays, a majority are employed full-time, and another 17% are employed part-time. So only about um, a little over a quarter uh, are not employed at all. So a big jump in women who are employed, which will come as no real surprise. Um, but women also say that being mothers makes it harder for them to advance at work. Um, both uh, mothers and fathers were asked if being an employed parent with children younger than 18, does it make it harder for you to advance in your job or career? Um, 50% of mothers, but only 39% of fathers say it does. Um, and then does working full-time make it harder for them to be a good parent there's no difference on that question. Majorities of mothers and fathers, but slim majorities say, yes, it does make that make it harder. So the expectations of how is it affecting your parenting don't differ by gender, but how is it affecting your career does differ by gender. Who how, who are the folks who say, yeah, it doesn't make it di- like I want to know what <laughs> I want what they're having. Well, maybe, Why does that happen? <laughs> maybe they are. I guess they're like self, you know. Or you or can, they could have a spouse who's doing a lot of stuff or we don't know. But. Yeah. Or you could feel like is that question if you say it hasn't made a difference. If you say it's made it harder, does it make it sound like you're like confessing you're a worse parent? Right. Like no, could just, it be an interpretation of yeah, the question? Right. Situation. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But still, interesting that there was no real gender difference there. Um, and there were there were just only slight gender differences in, like, specific, you know, then kind of breaking it down. Like, have you had to reduce your work hours um, because of, you know, having, chil- you know, having children uh, under 18? Um, have you felt that you could, couldn't give 100% at work? Have you turned down a promotion? The differences between fathers and mothers on there, you know, like less than 10%. I mean, not really that big. Uh, not as dramatic as you might think or as folks might hypothesize. Um, 
And then have you experienced some of these specific things being passed over for a promotion, passed over for an important assignment, being treated as if they weren't committed to their to their work? Um, you don't see really big gender differences there either. Um, I'm a little bit surprised by that. Certainly I hear and have experienced a lot of those things. So I've, you know, I could see, not recently, but I could see like, you know, I mean, I, this is, a, I guess, a democratic politics, people process these kinds of things and talk about this stuff a lot. But I'm surprised that people um, feel, you know, that there hasn't been a lot of uh, women saying that that uh, rating those things a little bit higher. And then there was another question. This was interesting. Percent. Uh, so this is uh, at this point in their life, it would be best for them personally to be working full time, working part time or not working for pay at all. That's the question. What would be personally best for you at this point in your life? And among fathers, 82% say working full-time. Among mothers, half say that. Um, And then mothers who are employed full-time, they are as likely to say working full-time as fathers. 84% of mothers who are employed full-time say, yes, that's what would be best for me. Um, And of mothers who are working part-time, 54% of them say that working part-time would be best for me. A third of them say it actually would be best for me to be working full-time. More mothers who work part-time say it would be best for them to work full-time than not at all. And of those mothers who are not employed, they're, I mean, I don't say they're evenly divided because that's not quite right, but they're almost evenly divided between working full-time, working part-time, and not working at all as what would be best for them. So the women who feel that their situation is actually what would be best for them are the ones who are working full time. Mm -hmm. And however, then this question is asked of uh, just of all adults and they say, what is the ideal situation for men with young children, women with young children? And I guess young children is maybe different than like you have children under the age of 18. Like that's it's not exactly apples to apples. Um, But in this question, people, 76 percent of Americans say, well, men with young children, they should be working full time. That would be the best. Um, Only 16 percent say working part time. But for women, only 33 percent of people say it is best for women with young children to be working full time. The plurality, 42 percent, say working part time. One in five say it's best for them to not be working at all. But that doesn't really line up with what women are saying about themselves right. and how satisfied are they. There were the people who are working full time. Eighty some percent of them are like, this is right for me personally. Um, right. So women tend to be pretty good at figuring out what's right for themselves. Right. Um, but when you ask people in the aggregate, the answer is a little different. Right. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I love that. I think it I think it's really I mean, it's really interesting. And what I kind of what I like about this too, I mean, it's focused on how the men and women feel about their own work. You know, sometimes you see these questions like well, what's best for the children and not that that's obviously not important, but you know, cuz obviously it is important, but this is, you know, about the satisfaction that or what they think is best for themselves personally for the people in these situations, which I think is interesting angle on it. So the last angle we'll hit on is the union angle. Um, so approve, disapprove of labor unions. Gallup has data on this going back to like the Great Depression. <laughs> this is the this is the craziest long trend line I've ever seen in one of these surveys. Um, goes back to the 1930s. And back then, 72 percent of Americans approved of labor unions, only 20 percent disapproved. And that held fairly stable through the kind of post uh, post 
World War II era. And then around the time the Cold War is mostly getting underway, you move into the 60s and the 70s, begins to erode, but really labor unions still receiving majority approval all the way until the beginning of the Obama presidency. And you, and this is not unique to this, but like that all of a sudden you wind up with this like greater ideological polarization and conservatives like suddenly having this like list of things that maybe they liked before, but now Obama's president. And they, I mean, I'm, it's correlation, not causation, but I, I think it's notable that like all of a sudden, and this also is happening around the time of the financial crisis, which is interesting because you could argue that it could have cut both ways, that in the moment of the financial crisis, if people are feeling screwed by big business and what have you, that they would want more labor unions because that would be fighting on their interests. How, or is it that the economy was bad and they felt that labor unions weren't playing a role? Who knows? But those numbers have crept back up. And now you have labor unions sitting at almost, I think, 64% approve, 32% disapprove. The highest it's been really in, a, in quite some time. Yeah. So this has been after, after you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, coming down to just briefly blipping below half has gone back up. I wrote about this a little bit in the selfie vote. And part of why I wanted... Um, the young woman from the nonprofit employees union to come on the show is my or at least five years ago when I was writing about this. I mean, the data showed that, you know, union members tended to be older, that like young people either weren't joining unions or they were getting jobs where they were independent contractors. Um, they weren't tending to work in the public sector, which is where the unions tend to be the strongest. Mm -hmm. So in Gallup's uh, research from 2018 to 2019, only six percent of those 18 to 34 were members of a union um, compared to 13 percent in that kind of prime working age of 35 to 54 um, and then 10 percent 55 and up um, that it tended to be, uh, you know, folks who were in the government versus in the private sector. Thirty seven percent of government employees say they're in a union, only six percent in the private sector, only two percent self-employed. Um, but you've now seen pushes in California this week. There was a push to sort of reclassify, you know, a lot of people who work in the gig economy trying to make it so that they have to be counted as employees. Conservatives think that will be bad because it thinks they think that it will mean some of those jobs just go away. Progressives like it because they think companies have been able to exploit freelance workers um, by counting them as contractors and not offering them benefits. Um, but my assumption was always that like the existing union structure and culture was going to be a bit at odds with where millennials are at. However, you've now got like in the digital publishing world, unions popping up that seem to be sort of taking a different approach than maybe a teacher's union contract where the youngest teachers are the ones that get fired first or what have you know, things that like if you're a millennial, you might not be crazy about. Mm -hmm. um, Margie, what are what is what sticks out to you in some of this data about unions that you've seen lately? So I I mean, well, I mean, part of it. I mean, I would say it's interesting that, and we don't have this here, right? But, you know, a lot of the issues that, you know, unions have been on the forefront of, like, you know, minimum wage and, you know, uh, making sure workers feel feel protected, those issues, uh, you know, you see, you know, really widespread support for those, um, you know, and, and continue to see it, you know, pretty publicly and in lots of polling. Um, so, uh, you know, I, and this is, I think, a pretty dramatic change in the last couple of years. And I wonder how much of it is a reaction to the sense that, like, it goes along. I mean, you were talking about how much of it is a reaction to Obama or the um, or economic uh, indicators and how much of it is, you know, reaction to, you know, partisan politics. I mean, what folks on the left see, Republicans saying 
public opinion's not on our side, so let's try to dismantle things that, you know, to make it easier for us to, you know, structure, structurally pass things that are aligned with our positions that are not as popular <laughs> nationally. And so, you know, part of that includes, you know, uh, attacks on, on labor unions in a lot of states and so on. So I, I see that through, through that lens. I know that voters are not necessarily seeing that, but maybe there's some, re- you know, it, it does reflect a strength in the, what unions offer and what union values are and sort of, you know, standing up for our working voters. Well, and I think things like right to work, for instance, we don't have any right. polling on this in the script, but the way that a conservative might write the question, even trying to be unbiased, would be, should you have the ability to work in a job for which you are hired and decline to join the union in that workplace? And if, if framed that way, it, you know, you get large numbers of people saying yes, but there are also ways to sort of ask it that don't get Right. Lots of people going, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, so this, I think, is also part- like one of I mean, it always matters how you word the question, but like is a particularly sensitive type of area where um, perfectly reasonable people can view these policy issues right. in very or, different you ways. Know, should teachers, you know, should we pay teachers more? I mean, you know, these yeah. like those kinds of things people are, you know, really widely support. And it's not that, you know, those things I don't think are v- particularly volatile at all. But this change in support for unions, I think, may could reflect a feeling that, you know, corporations are really consolidating power in a way that's not helpful to working folks. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about art and bananas. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. All right, so we're back with our quirky polls of the week. Uh, this one I just threw into the script like last minute because I saw it on Twitter and it amused me and seemed ripe it, for the end of the oh, show. That was good. <laughs> oh, that was so great. I didn't even plan that. I just came up with it. Like just came up with it two Comedy seconds gold. ago. Um, I was is... looking at the script this morning and this was on my screen and my daughter was like, what is that? Like, finally, I'm interested in something <laughs> and, uh, that you're working on. And, um, and I was like, it's a poll about bananas. And so I was like, well, it doesn't really look like um, many people, you know, people don't really like green bananas. She's like, well, five, five people do. I'm like, well, it's percent. But yeah, I guess you're right. It is. It, there are some people. So we had a you know conversation about where we would be. And she's like, I think it needs more. Like it needs more different colors. Just like it needs more that scale needed to be bigger. Oh, wow. Interesting methodology note. So when I first saw this, so what YouGov did is they asked people, how ripe do you most prefer your bananas? And respondents were given the choice between five different options. Um, It looks to me like they presented people with options that were written words but it's YouGov and it's online polling. And so this seems like it would have been an interesting opportunity to ask the question, 
with these images that you see yes. on the chart they tweeted out. So if any of our friends listening work for YouGov, can you tell us, was this survey done by offering people just the written words, green, mostly yellow with some green, solid yellow, yellow with some brown spots, those sorts of things? I don't think you would possibly show someone that green of a banana. That banana is not ready to eat. But some people do like a kind of, you know, greenish-hued banana. But that is not what that is. That That's is an true. unripe banana. That, that was the <laughs> methodological note my daughter had because she likes hers to be air on the side of green, but not that green because yeah. th- that is not anything anybody would want. <laughs> so I, I guess I find myself in the minority here. I would put myself in the uh, yellow with some brown spots, mm-hmm. um, which would not be the uh, mostly brown with some yellow. That the is one right correct. above that. Um, yeah, the one right above that, though. Huh. That's pretty good. I mean, it's 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 yeah. sweet uh, or solid yellow. Like, I, yeah. I don't, it doesn't have not too many spots. The other benefit of having bananas that are overly ripe on your counter is baking. Yes, there is fresh banana bread in my house right yeah. now because there were some bananas that were about to go, and now they have been turned into. A more, a more beautiful form. The I'm caterpillars more, I, become a butterfly. I often freeze. I peel them and freeze them, and then I have been frozen ripe bananas for other other kinds of things. Banana ice cream, which I can trick kids into thinking is something really delicious. It's just banana frozen bananas in a blender. Amazing, and you know, in a cup with a spoon, and you know, they think I'm like I've given them some very incredible dessert luxury. Um, so yeah, they need needs more answer categories. Is my comments on that? Then there's this other question that certainly did use visual cues yes. to ask people for an answer. This is a YouGov question: Is this image art? And of course, this being a podcast, this is really going to be enthralling to you guys as we try to describe what this maybe art, maybe not art thing is. To me, it looks like. A budding young artist, perhaps your daughter, sat down with a variety of different crayons and attempted some interesting cross-hatching, scribbling. Looks like there might be a purple sailboat and or pyramid in the middle. Uh, I would not consider it art, but I am a conservative fuddy-duddy who thinks a lot of modern art is sillyhood. So, so I am unsophisticated. So Take me and out then of this. the other thing is that people who thought it was art are more likely to be democratic. And if you did not think this was art, you were more likely to be Republican. Surprise, as I said, conservative funny daddy over here who's like, this is not art, guys. So I was conflicted <laughs> about this because for a couple reasons. One I've, you know, one, it's like, okay, am I just supposed to be open-minded? Like, it's all art, you know, which I think is a, you know, that's a good, because this is kind of reinforcing, as the Vox article says, like, people open to new experiences and more likely to be liberal than people who are less open to new experiences, which, you know, I've seen people write that story a bunch of times. And so this is just kind of consistent with that. Are you like, sure, if you say it's art, let's art, let's, you know, it's art. I'm with you. I'm along for this new experience of a ride that's calling (laughs) this art. I looked at the name Coffee Time and like Coffee Time is like there was a story my mom would tell me all the time when I was a kid about how she drank this sort of like fake coffee thing for kids and it was called Coffee Time in the 60s, whatever it was. There was some like coffee syrup that she would mix with milk as a child that called Coffee Time. And so like 
I saw coffee time, even though it's spelled like the herb and neither coffee nor time is in this painting, which is also confusing. But anyway, and so I'm like, coffee time is not this. Coffee time is some other thing. <laughs> this is not coffee time. Like, I don't know. I just had a reaction to the name that was just unique to me alone. It does not look like it looks like, you know, it looks like modern art. It looks like it's trying to kind of fool me into thinking that it is it is or it is not art. Like, I've, it felt to me, um, you know, a, a aesthetically pleasing, not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, technically rigorous. But at the same time, I'm not a good modern art consumer. I just, you know, I just like to look at things. I don't actually have good, I don't have well-informed artistic thoughts. Just brief uh, flea bag talk again, uh, revisiting our favorite topic. Yes. Is, it, it reminds me of the end of season one when they're at the uh, art exposition yeah. for um, the soon-to-be mother-in-law yes. or what have you, yes. Olivia Coleman's yes. character. Yes. And there's a piece of art that like at the beginning of the show Fleabag takes and like yes. it's an, it's important throughout yes. the show but it was supposed to be in the exposition and it is gone and so she like gives this whole pretentious speech about like this empty podium yes is her art and it is called a woman robbed <laughs> and it was just like this is too much for me this have you watched much. season two where it comes back yes okay. I've, I have finished Fleabag okay. I have finished Fleabag I have finished Dairy Girls I am working on the crown I'm working on the crown yeah that's the commitment. Um, so yes, I, I, God, I loved, I mean, I loved this. I loved when they use that piece of art as the prize for a woman in business. And then they talk about like being a woman in business. And, God, that was like the, my favorite episode. I mean, it was the most incredible my thing I've ever seen. Anyway, so good. I mean, it was such a good, that was so obviously written by a woman. That was art. That was for sure art. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, sure it's art. And I guess I was, I responded to like using this particular image, like this is the thing that's going to tell us all whether we're pro-Trump or less Trump. Like that doesn't, to me, it felt insufficient as a way to determine <laughs> as a predictor. I don't know. That was what I had a reaction to. But that was just my own personal, you know, just looking at something and deciding whether it was art or not. Like the Art Decider Twitter handle, which I also enjoy. Well, I'm going to have to check this art. out. Because I, I don't, I've never heard of this. Art Decider? No. Oh, so like if something crazy happens on Twitter, someone will like just, you know, snitch tag Art Decider. I don't even know if I'm using that word. Like, is this art at Art <laughs> Decider? And whoever runs it or is like art. Okay, not, I'm into that. Or not that. art. Or not art. I'm into that. I only follow 100 accounts on Twitter and one of them is Chris Evans as a golden retriever. So I'd have to cut someone in order to add Art Decider. I'm not cutting Chris Evans as a golden retriever. I mean, so. you could just enjoy when Art Decider shows up. Yeah, sometimes it's... it just pops up in my feed. If you ever share it, then it pops up in my feed. Yeah. You made the cut. You and Chris Evans as a golden uh, retriever. Congratulations, so... Margie. So what my did we Twitter, learn this week? My Twitter feed is not art. I have decided. You don't need an Art Decider <laughs> to know that that is not art. <laughs> it is just carefully edited, you know, polling musings. <laughs> That's all we need. So what what so we know what is art and we've decided what's art and what's not art have we decided what's polling what's real polling and what's not polling it's or not is, push polls or what's war oh yes i i i did try to almost get into a fight with somebody poll about decider push it's not a push poll it's not a it's a message test so it's a real poll you know those sorts of things you could start at poll decider is yeah. it a real poll that's that's that would be work that yeah. is probably not i don't there's not an answer category for like i'm doing too much non-work that I'm counting as work, the pupil would need to 
add a category for that. How many things do you do at your job that are actually not your job? And being pulled aside would definitely fall into that category. I'd like to take the fifth. <laughs> uh, so what did we learn this week? Uh, you know, I, that's it. I think, I've summed, I think I've summed it up. Did you figure out what was happening in the UK elections with uh, Lord Ashcroft? Uh, no, well, we actually, we got Anthony Wells from YouGov who uh, came on the show this time. Okay. We still don't know because we won't really know until either No Deal Brexit actually happens, yes. uh, Boris Johnson makes a deal, or Boris Johnson backs down and says, JK, we're not actually leaving. Yes. And then those are, that, there's, there's still a lot of different ways this story could branch. Yes, so, those things are on our office calendar. No Deal Brexit date is on our office calendar along with... Uh, National Cheeseburger Day, which I think was yesterday. Oh, well, then I'm going to get a cheeseburger today because I did not celebrate it. <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> okay. Where should people find us? You can find us on Twitter at, at The Pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Mara and at Kay Soltis Anderson or www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.